Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Beautiful weather, huh? All right. Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We looked at the last paragraph of 2 Peter chapter 1 last Sunday, and we're going to look at it again. Verses 16 through 21. There's a little bit more for us to dig out of this, this gold mine. So as you're finding that, let me mention to you and just reiterate what Springer said. I want to invite you to come out again tonight, those of you that are able and willing to our Colossians study. We had a great start last week, and it's very informal. We'll start at 6. We'll be done by 7.15 or so. I'd encourage you to come a little early. Bring a bag of you know, crystals or whatever else the, you, know, you eat on Sunday nights. I mean, that's, that's terrible for you. Actually, I wouldn't recommend getting that, but make a peanut butter sandwich and maybe come a little early and eat with some friends or hang around a little late. It's a wonderful time in the Word. It's a wonderful time of fellowship. It's very informal, um, and, and I hope that it will be an encouragement to us. And also, let me mention, uh, that just piggybacking on what Springer mentioned about our prayer on October 6th for the 40 Days of Life, I want us to pray for that issue, and also, before we get into this text, pray for our nation. Um, you know, this, this campaign of 40 Days of Life is something that um, local Christians and other people in our city that are just good folks that want to uh, see the end of abortion call for this, this time of prayer out at the abortion clinic here in Columbus on Rosemont Avenue, which is over there behind St. Francis. And when we gather together with organizations that hold this, we're not necessarily saying that we um, believe everything that the organizers of these uh, prayer uh, efforts believe. We realize that people maybe from other faiths might even be there, are people that are not necessarily believers, or people that think they are that aren't. Well, all of that is true. We're not, we're not necessarily saying that we're on the same sheet of music with everybody that wants to see the end of abortion theologically. But we think that we as a church, as believers, should have a presence there, and so we're asking for you to come and pray and sign up on that sheet and, and pray there at that abortion clinic. But here's my burden, and obviously this is going to be a very, very contentious, it always is, a very contentious political issue. It especially will be as we approach this presidential election. Um, I, my burden is, is that we as a church, you know, it's one thing to have a, a political position that's informed by our theology, that we believe that all of life is sacred and ordained by God, and that we believe that life begins at conception. But our, our, our stance as believers in a dark world must go far beyond just a ballot box or a political position. And so I want us to pray that that God would be gracious to us, that He would forgive us as a nation for the horrific sins that we've participated in as a nation in this sin of abortion. But I also want to be compassionate to people that find themselves in a situation where they, they, they feel like that's their only option. It's one thing to just say, oh, well, you shouldn't do this. And of course, of course that's the case. There's a thousand things that we want to say that to. But it's another thing to, to care for people who are in desperate situations. And not just care for them physically, but to bring them the gospel. And so as a church, we want to be thoughtful along those lines. And we want to, we want to just have more than a political stance. And I also recognize that there are people in this room that have participated in abortions. Women and men. And it's painful for you to even think about these things. And maybe you're carrying with you some shame or burden from your past. I want you to know that there is grace in Christ for all of our sins. His mercy is greater than our sin. And if you have turned from trusting in yourself and you've repented of your sins, there is more mercy in Christ than you can imagine for you. 
and you have been united with Christ by faith, and you, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think about a couple in this church who met a waitress at a Waffle House who was in the middle of an unplanned pregnancy and was abortion-minded. And they cared for this young woman and shepherded her and started a relationship with her which resulted in her actually keeping her child. I know every Christian is not necessarily going to be called to the front lines of caring for crisis pregnancies or adopting or fostering. But friends, let's ask God to help us be people that are courageous, full of conviction, full of compassion, and that are ready to care for this world and have more than just a political position. Can we do that? Let's pray. And let's pray for God to open our eyes as we get into this text. Lord, you are so good. You're sovereign. You're gracious. You're just, you're, it's amazing that you have not just poured out your wrath on this world, but you're so kind and you're gracious. And yet here we are, September 20th, 2020, in a chaotic world, in a broken place, in a contentious culture. We ask for your help, Lord. We, we say, like the, 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 the leaders of, of, of your people in the Old Testament said often, Lord, we don't know what to do sometimes. The situation seems so dark and so helpless, so the task's so overwhelming. But Lord, we turn our attention away from the mountain that is before us to the creator of the mountain who is sovereign over all hearts. And we plead to you, Lord, for your grace to us as a nation. We pray, Lord, that, that there would be a time soon in our country where young women and men that are trapped in sin, that are suffering the consequences of a bad decision, would find it unconscionable to take the life of a child growing in a womb. Lord, we pray that that would be the case. I pray for young men and women and old men and women in this room who participated in the taking of an unborn child's life, and I pray for grace to them. Lord, we pray for wisdom for our politicians. We pray for politicians to, to be elected that would, would see life biblically, but Lord, we also, Lord, we, 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 we pray for politicians that wouldn't just have a political stance, but that would be, whose hearts would be renewed and would, would not just vote this way for the sake of a voting block, but who would care deeply about life and the glory of God, Lord. We need this, but yet as we say that, Lord, we know that our hope cannot be in the political process or in a candidate, but it is only found in Christ. Lord, we know that we live in two cities, the city of this world and the city of God, and that will always be the case until Jesus comes again. But Lord, while we are dual citizens in a sense of heaven and of this fallen earth, Lord, may we seek to do good to our city and may we love our neighbors and may we be clear what their greatest need is. It's Christ. And may you remind us of that as we look at this text, Lord, stir our affections for your word. Let us not just have a good doctrine of scripture, but let us, Lord, fight to have the discipline, the spirit, spiritual grit to actually take in your word because so much hangs in the balance. Lord, make us not just be people with good theology but no practice, but make us humble, grit-filled Christians who love your word and love each other and love the gospel and love this fallen world. Lord, now do wonderful things as we look at your word. I pray for our glory and for, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Part two of the word more fully confirmed. I don't do this very often, but I'm doing it now. Let me read our text, verses 16 through 21. Last week we explained it, and this week I'm going to think about and want us to consider some consequences theologically and doctrinally of this incredibly important paragraph. The Bible, God's word, has always been attacked. In fact, before his word was written down, the very first picture of spiritual warfare between 
mankind and the devil we see in the third chapter of Genesis as an attack on God's word. God tells Adam and Eve what they can and cannot do. He gives them his word. And the devil in Genesis chapter 3 comes along and wants to put doubt in the heart of Adam and Eve. And he said, did God actually say that? And he twists God's word and uses it against Adam and Eve. He wants to cause a crisis of confidence in the word of God and the goodness of God. And the battle still rages today. So let me read verses 16 through 21 again. Peter says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp and a shining, shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy ever produced by the will of man was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Today's message will really be an extrapolation considering the consequences of the second half of verse 21. And I'll read it again. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now last week we really had two points. That Peter's point here in verses 16 through 21 is he starts with giving us this, this validation, this defense of his authority as an apostle. He says, I saw Jesus transfigured in all of his glory on the mountain. It was a sure experience. It happened. It's true. You can trust my word over and against these false teachers that he's going to attack in chapter 2. But then he says something stunning in verses 19 through 21. He says, as sure as my eyewitness experience was of seeing the transfigured Christ in all of his glory on the mountain, there's something even more sure, more fully confirmed than that, and it is the prophetic word, which is shorthand for not just specific prophecies of the Old Testament, but the whole work of the scriptures of the Old Testament. He says in verse 19, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. And then he goes on to describe in more detail. And this is really the most detail, I think, in all of the Bible that we see of how the Bible is actually composed and comes to us. He says that these writers of the Bible, and he's speaking at this point of the Old Testament because the New Testament was in the process of being written. In fact, Peter's writing one of the New Testament letters here. But he gives us this picture, the clearest picture in all of the Bible, of how the Bible, the written word of God, comes about. And he says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask two questions this morning and hopefully answer them and bolster our faith in the Bible. The two questions are, what should Christians believe about the Bible? And why is the correct doctrine of Scripture so important? And along the way, I hope something more than just doctrinal faithfulness and, and knowledge fills our hearts. I pray that God would, would encourage us to see the glory of the Bible, which is Christ. So question number one, what should Christians believe about the Bible? The first thing is, is that we should believe that the Bible is inspired. And by this word inspired, I don't mean inspiring, as if, boy, that was really motivational. That song gave me goosebumps. Not on in that way. This word in the Bible means breathed out. You might think of it better as exhaled. The Bible is breathed out by God through the work of the Holy Spirit, as we read in verse 21 of our text, as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the God himself is breathing, in a sense, through these men, the writers of the Bible, to bring about exactly what he intended to be written down on the page. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
And here again, Paul, like Peter in our main text, is speaking about the Old Testament. He's speaking to Timothy, and he says, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And what Paul meant by Scripture was the whole of the Old Testament, from from Genesis to Malachi, what we know of as the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. That's what they had here in this first century. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so as we looked at last week, what's going on here is not mechanical dictation most of the time, although that does happen sometimes. Like God tells Moses exactly what to write down on the tablets. But most of the time, through the prophets, through David, through, through Moses and, and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, God is using their circumstances, their personality. He's ordaining everything that they're going through, and he's working through them so that through the medium of their thoughts, their personalities, their situations, God is inspiring, divinely superintending that through this human vessel, what these Old Testament writers are writing down is exactly what he intends to be written down. That's what we mean by inspiration. He's divinely inspiring. So here's an important question, though, because what we just read in 2 Peter and what we read in 2 Timothy is speaking of the Old Testament. Is this also true of the New Testament? Can we apply this to the New Testament? And the answer to that is yes. Peter says that Jesus is speaking through the apostles at the end of his letter, and he puts his apostles, Jesus' apostles, of which he is one of, on the same authority as the Old Testament prophets. So at the end of 2 Peter, which we'll get to at some point eventually, 2 Peter chapter 3, listen to what Peter says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up by way of sincere reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and, so we talk about the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So do you see what he's doing there? He's coupling the authority of the Old Testament with the teaching of the apostles, which would become the New Testament. So Peter here is by implication saying that what he's saying about the Old Testament's authority is also true of what will become the New Testament, the writing of the apostles. Paul also recognized, he wrote a majority of the New Testament, he recognized his own teachings, his own writings as authoritative. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's the type of things that Old Testament prophets would say. So Paul is saying that about his own letters. So here you have a New Testament letter writer, Paul, claiming Old Testament-like authority in the writing. So, so we're trying to answer this question, does the inspiration apply to the New Testament as well? And the answer to that is yes. Paul, Paul says something similar that, that we can, can conclude means that he saw his writings as authoritative. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about marriage. We won't take the time to read it, but he says something really interesting. In one verse in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that, now this is me speaking, not the Lord. And he's talking about a particular situation in marriage. And some people have concluded that Paul is like stepping out of inspiration at that moment, and he's saying, you know, what I've been talking to you about, what Jesus said, you know, that's really authoritative, and now this is just my opinion. That's exactly the opposite, actually, of what Peter, of Paul is saying. What he's saying is, what I've just talked to you about in 1 Corinthians 7 is something that Jesus directly addressed during his earthly ministry, so of course that has authority. But what I'm about to tell you right now is something that the Lord Jesus didn't mention during his earthly ministry, but it carries the same weight. So actually, he's actually validating the authority of what he's writing. Peter also recognized Paul's writings as scripture. So we have a, 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 an apostle writing in this letter about another apostle's writing, calling it scripture. Again, at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says in verse 15, 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. I love this because this is one apostle saying it about another possible apostle. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen? Which the ignorant and unstable, now listen to this, listen to how Peter classifies Paul's writing. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So you have Peter, who is an apostle commissioned by Christ, saying of Paul, who is another apostle with this authority to write the Bible, he's calling Paul's letters what he would call the Old Testament scripture. So clearly, the New Testament has the same authority as the Old Testament. And in fact, just one more thing, Paul combines when he's talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he actually combines a quote from Deuteronomy and a quote from Luke's gospel, and he calls them both scripture. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So he says in verse 18, scripture says this, the first thing that he quotes is a quotation from Deuteronomy, but the second thing he quotes, the laborer deserves his wages, is something that Jesus is recorded as saying in Luke's gospel. And so why is that important? Because Peter is attributing a quote that is part of Luke's gospel that will become part of the New Testament as scripture. The point is, is that the apostles understood that what they were writing had the authority of Scripture. And so the New Testament, we can read these verses like we've just read, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as applicable to the Old Testament and to the New. One more little thing I want to clear up for those of you that may be wondering before we move on to the second thing we should believe about the Bible is, you know, this is a question that often comes, who determined, who determined what was inspired? Who determined what books should be in the Old Testament, and who determined what books and letters should be included in the New Testament? Well, the short answer to that is God. God's working through His people, and He's superintending and providentially controlling people and the decisions that they make so that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and their leaders are preserving exactly what He wants to preserve, and he's working through the church in the New Testament and the apostles to preserve exactly what he wants to preserve. There's much more that we can say about this. If you want some good resources, email me. I'll point you to some classic and easy-to-read books and one website in particular that has lots of good articles and resources. But here's the point I want to make, is that you can be very, hear me, Christian, especially younger Christians that go off and go away to school or go away to college where there are liberal professors that want to undermine the authority of the Bible, that want to do everything that they can to attack the authority of the Bible, you can be confident, beloved, that every question that you may have about the Bible's composition, about anything you see in the Bible, any seeming on the surface inconsistency, you can be confident that it has been faithfully and consistently and thoroughly answered very clearly through the ages by faithful men and women in the history of the church. You can be sure of that. And if we really drill down on that, I would cause half of you to go to sleep, and I won't do that. But those of you that are more interested in that, I will point you to some good resources, so email me. So just know this, dear ones, that Christians believe historically and should believe because the Bible says it, that God has breathed out his Bible into the hearts and minds of men who wrote it down into what we now have. The second thing that Christians should believe about the Bible is that it is inerrant. You may have not heard this word before. It's a, a theological word. It just simply means without error. It means that Scripture, and we're talking about the original copy. So when Moses wrote you know, Exodus and he wrote Deuteronomy, or when, when, when Paul is writing uh, Romans, that his, his copy that he's writing is without error. Now certainly, through the centuries, there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of each book of the Bible it has been transmitted. 
And there were times where there would be a kind of grammatical error or a misspelling of a word here or a misplaced word here and there. But those transmission errors are incredibly minute. And none of them, because we have so many manuscript copies of letters of the Bible, we can know that none of them affected the actual meaning of the verse in any significant way. It was just really a grammatical error or getting a name wrong. So then we can know, we can be confident that the Bible is true. It's without error. And the writers of the Bible, every book of the Bible, wrote down exactly what God intended to have them write down. And everything that it says is true. Listen, this is what the Bible says about itself. Psalm 19, verse 7 and 9. 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Friends, what does this believe that Paul and Moses and Matthew and Luke, what does it believe, what does it, what does it prove that we can be very, very confident that we have a faithful translation of exactly what they wrote down in the original language? That, that really, there, there's very few people, even people that hate the Bible and are not believers, that are scholars, they, they will vouch for the, the validity and the confidence that we can have that what we have as copies of the Old Testament or New Testament is what they actually wrote, translated into our languages, faithfully translated. But what does it prove that the Bible, what we have, is inerrant, meaning it's, there's no errors in the copies that we have? What does it prove? It does not prove for us that the Bible is actually true. That is something and we must maintain this, in fact, even joyfully admit this. The Bible is not like a science manual or a mathematic equation where we can take two plus two and we know that it equals four. Although I understand in this new core math stuff that they do now, maybe that's not the case. But you understand what I'm talking about. Two plus two equals four. The Bible doesn't work like an empirical data chart that you can prove. It can only be brought to bear in our hearts and believed as true by the illumination, by the work of the very Spirit who wrote it. And so when you're witnessing to an unbelieving friend, yes, I mentioned this last week, use good apologetics, use good arguments for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Talk about all those things that you can talk about from good resources and good books that will pile up evidence that we can have more confidence that we have exactly what, listen to this, that we can be more confident by manuscript evidence that we have what Paul and Peter and David and the other Bible writers wrote. We can have more confidence that we actually have what they wrote than we can have confidence that the writers of the Declaration of Independence wrote what they wrote. And none of us doubt that. But the point is, is that even that will not convince somebody they need, as you are witnessing to your friend, they need the Spirit to take their dead heart and make it alive so they can, they can believe. The Bible is inerrant. Thirdly, the Bible is sufficient. And man, this is being attacked today, even in the church. Peter says this in verse 3 of the first chapter that we studied a few weeks ago. We can't say it enough. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter is telling us there, and here he's giving us this explanation of the word of God as men carried along by the Holy Spirit, they wrote it. We can deduce from this, and Christians for centuries have deduced, that the Bible, the Word of God, is sufficient for life and godliness. This does not mean, don't put expectations on the Bible that it never 
that it never says it, 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 it's not for that purpose. The Bible is not an exhaustive explanation of all things. It's a sufficient explanation that all things that Christians need for life and godliness. For salvation, certainly. For understanding the gospel. What do we mean by this? Some Christians will say things like, and I think they probably are trying to be faithful, but I think it's, it's an unhelpful and unwise thing to say. They will say things like, uh, no creed but Christ. And what they mean by that is, you know, we don't, we don't want any of these creeds or confessions of the faith in the history of the church, just, just Christ. That's not what we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient. We're saying that, yes, there are other things that we can read that are true and hear that are true, but all of it is to be subordinated to the primacy, to the authority, which we'll get into in a moment, of Scripture. And the Scripture gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And so we don't have to go outside of what the Bible tells us to live a successful, godly life, to thrive in this world. Listen to how the English Baptists in London in 1689 and the London Baptist Confession of Faith put it in their Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6 on the Holy Scriptures. This was the Confession of Faith that Charles Spurgeon used in his church in England in the 1800s. A, a wonderful confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says about Scripture's sufficiency, the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the people of God, under the right teaching of the Word, can deduce by necessary inference what God wants them to do. God gives his people wisdom guided by the light of his word. Nothing is ever to be added to the scriptures either by new revelation of the spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the word. So they confess what I just said. So that, that, that's true. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom following the general rules of the word, which must always be observed. So what are these English Puritans saying? They're saying that the Bible is all we need and the Bible gives us a general wisdom and we are to then walk in the light of this general wisdom as to how to do life in this world. What are some practical implications of this all-important truth that the Bible is sufficient? Listen to me, dear ones. Listen, this is so important in the age that we live in. We do not need social theories or secular philosophies to explain to us how to interpret the world or culture's problems around us. We do not need them. This is, this is a major controversy and discussion in the life of the church, things like critical race theory and intersectionality that may say some true things because God gives common grace and he gives even unregenerate hearts and unregenerate professors and unregenerate scholars and academics. He gives them a kind of grace where they will say true things just like he would give an unbelieving scientist or an unbelieving doctor the common grace to invent a cure for some dreaded disease. Likewise, he, the, 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 the sun rises and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There's common grace. But friends, we must be careful about where these worldly secular philosophies will take us. They will say some true things and they will be attractive and they will draw us away and slowly but surely it will be like a riptide that pulls us away and the underlying motivation, I think, spiritually for the wicked forces that are inspiring some of these things culturally is to cause a crisis of confidence in the hearts of God's people. And so as you are reading these things, as you are interacting with these things, as you are having conversations, maybe in school or, or whatever, know that although true things may be said by the world, they are incomplete, they are insufficient, and it all must be brought under the subordination of the sufficiency and the authority, which we'll get to in a moment, of the Word of God. 
And living life in a local church with wise older people helping you to discern how that applies is your only chance of navigating in this culture. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. That's why God gives us the church. That's what Peter's saying when he says we don't follow cleverly devised myths. Colossians chapter 2, he says, don't be taken captive by empty philosophies of this world. And that is really, really raging in our world today. Fourthly, the Bible is authoritative. Now, this follows logically. If God has breathed out his word, all these things sort of follow logically. Do you see this? Everything kind of flows from, if we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by him, and that the Bible writers wrote down exactly what the creator and sovereign and righteous and holy and good creator of the universe wanted to be communicated, then it follows that it would be inerrant without error. It follows that it would be sufficient, all that we need for life and godliness. And of course, it follows that God's word then would carry his authority. This is what Psalm 138 says, verse 2. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So God's word is exalted. It carries with it his authority. Now you may say, well, Brad, of course. Who doesn't believe in the authority of God's word? Well, lots and lots and lots of people who call themselves Christians. It's one thing to sort of confess this. It's another thing to actually live it. And that's why we preach out of the Bible. That's why we teach out of the Bible. That's why we try and pray the scriptures. That's why there are a lot of popular songs out there that are listened to by many Christians that are maybe good musically and are sung by people that have good voices, but they are theologically bankrupt. And sometimes people will say, hey, Paul, let's sing this song. And Paul will have to say, no, we don't sing those songs because they are, they're, not, they're, not, they're not speaking about the Word of God. They're not coming from the Word of God. They have no authority. There's nothing good in that. It might be musically good, and it might be sort of attractive in some sort of entertainment way, but it's not the Word of God. And many people, many people try and bend or subordinate the Word of God to cultural norms. Friends, this is happening with people who call themselves Christians. They are bending their view of human sexuality and human gender and the roles for men and women. They are letting the mood and the tenor and the opinion of culture take a place of authority over the Scripture. And friends, that is not biblical Christianity. God's Word is always good. And it will oftentimes, in fact, the majority of the time, contradict our sinful nature. And the battle of Christian living is subordinating a fallen culture subordinating our residual sinful desires underneath the authority of God's word. And this is the battle of our day. It's been the battle of every day. Did God really say, is he really good? Well, if he was good, surely he would let you love whoever you love. How could a good God do this? Friends, the battle for the sufficiency and the authority of God's word rages fiercely. Fifthly, the Bible is clear. Now, some of you are saying, okay, I was, I was with you till then, Brad. I was with you. There, I mean, you just said that, Peter just said that some of the things that Paul said were hard to understand. Yes. But listen to what we mean by clear. Clear does not mean that we're going to understand every nook and cranny of the Bible. But everything that we need for life and godliness, for people that want to and have a desire, a renewed desire to understand the things of God, can. Friends, I want to build that confidence in you. We have, some of us, have been wrongly taught. We have, we, we, we've been taught this kind of wrong view of the Bible that it's so complicated, it's so hard, and because we have no engagement with the Bible, we didn't grow up hearing it, the first time that we encounter something that seems challenging or hard to piece together, we throw up our hands. 
And what we need, we're smart enough to figure it out. What we actually need is some spiritual grit. We have it in every other area of life. I mean, if you were training for a marathon, and again, I say this every time I mention it, I don't know why you would do that, but if you were training for a marathon and you started running one mile and it started to get hard, you don't just stop and say, gosh, man, man, that's hard. Of course it's hard, but you keep running. And the Bible at times can be difficult to piece together, but it can be done by God's people. Listen to what, again, these English Baptists confessed in their confession of faith in 1689 in London. They said, chapter 1, paragraph 7, the Holy Scripture, some things in Scripture are clearer than others. That's true, obviously. And some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. Now, that's true as well. We have to admit that. I mean, some knives are made for steak and some knives are made for butter. You understand what I'm saying, right? Some sharper than others. But, listen to this. I wasn't talking about you necessarily. I mean, if you're you're getting mad now, that's between you and the Lord. I'm just saying. Some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, take courage, Christian, because if you're thinking, man, I'm a butter knife. I'm a butter knife. I want you to hear this. You may be a butter knife, but God gave you skills. Man, some of the best Christians I know are butter knives. They're they're far more useful than these shiny steak knives. Some of the best Christians I know, some of the most fruitful people I know, are simple, uneducated people who, who roll up their sleeves and serve God in the best way that they know how. And God uses their life in far more glorious ways than all these shiny steak knives in their jinsu little whatever. Let me keep reading. I should have just kept reading. However, the things that must be known, believed and obeyed for salvation, are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary means. In other words, if you will apply some grit, if God has, listen to me, dear friend, if God has given you a new heart, then there's some theological things about you that are truer than any obstacle that you face when you read God's word. He's given you the grit. And if you will use just ordinary means of sticking with it, planting yourself in a church that preaches the Bible, gathering yourself around older Christians who can help explain things to you, and get past yourself and be humble and admit that you need help, God will open up your mind and you will know all that you need to know. That's true, that's true, that's true. And I think what most of us experience when we have difficulty understanding clear parts of the Bible is it's not a deficiency in the Bible. It's not that God didn't communicate clearly. It's just that we're so distracted. I mean, we're, come on. You sit down to read the Bible and you, ding! Oh, I got an email. (laughs) I have a great uncle in Italy that wants me to send him $2 million and if I would just give him, I mean, come on, what? I mean, just ding, oh, my favorite show's on, ding, oh, the whatever, ding, oh, I got to check my email, ding. I mean, we're just, we're just, we're addicted to distraction. And, and what this is saying is that you, the Bible's clear, come on, hang in there, you can do it, you can understand it. Give your life to understanding God's clear truth in the context of the church, and God will meet you there, he will. And he may use your butter knife for glorious purposes. Glorious purposes. Give me, give me a brigade of butter knives and we'll take down a platoon of steak knives. Finally, the Bible is Christ-centered. You can believe all the above and missed the point of the Bible. In fact, the religious leaders in Jesus' day believed everything that we've said, and yet they missed the point of the Bible. 
John chapter 5, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Bible is ultimately not a book of pragmatic wisdom. It's not just a collection of doctrines that we need to know and store away in our hearts. It is a grand narrative that is pointing us to look away from ourselves to Christ, whom God has given to die on the cross and rise again in victory so that all that would trust in Jesus can be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross and through His victorious resurrection. That's what the Bible is about. It's about Jesus. Spurgeon famously said, he was talking to a a young preacher, and this preacher preached a sermon, and he got some negative feedback from somebody. And Spurgeon said, well, all you said was true, but there was no Christ in your sermon. You said a lot of true things, but there was no Jesus in your sermon. And Spurgeon gave him this analogy, and he says, you know, in, in England, in Spurgeon's day, he said, in every town or hamlet in the, country, in the countryside of England, there is a road that leads to London. And he said, likewise, in every text, on every page of Scripture, there is a road that leads to Christ. Get on that road and go there. Now, this doesn't mean, we need to understand what this means. Spurgeon does not mean that we need to find Jesus in every little nook and cranny in places that he's not really present. You know, like maybe you're reading the Old Testament and there's somebody that's wearing like a, 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 a coat with a, a, you know, a red fabric on it. Aha! There's Christ! Yeah, that, that red fabric, it, 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 it's, a, it's a picture of Christ's blood. Or maybe it's just the guy had red fabric on his coat. We, we can overdo it. And we can so look for Christ in every little nook and cranny that we, we, we kind of just don't really understand the bigger point that the Bible's teaching us. But what the Bible does do in every page, in every verse, in some way, contrib- contributes to this grand narrative that builds either speaking explicitly about Christ or is pointing us or is showing us our need for Christ. So even if we read like Genesis 38, this terrible chapter about this sister who was raped and these brothers who take revenge and slaughter this people group, what's going on there just ends like, wow, that was a horrible scene. Where's Christ in this Old Testament story? Christ in that Old Testament story stands behind it because when we see the debauchery of mankind and the wickedness of our hearts and the futility of our own efforts to bring about justice, we see that we need a redeemer. We need somebody to save us from our sin. We need a God that will come and save us from our sin and give us true justice. So behind every page of the Bible in some way is Christ. The Bible is Christ-centered. Well, let's land this plane with this last question. Why is a correct doctrine of Scripture so important? And I don't mean to be hyperbolic here or dramatic. I know I can be dramatic and hyperbolic. I can do that. But I don't think I'm being dramatic here when I say that if you lose the doctrine of Scripture, you'll eventually lose all the doctrines of Scripture. If you don't If you have a crisis of confidence that what you have is God's word, if you don't truly believe that, when life gets hard and culture gets attractive and sin is raging in your soul, you will be vulnerable to shift off of the firm foundation of God's word and believe anything that will make you feel better in the moment. And so a correct doctrine of Scripture, while it may not be the most important doctrine of the Bible, I would say that's the gospel and the atoning work of Christ, if you don't have the doctrine of Scripture firmly rooted underneath your feet, you will eventually lose all other doctrine because we live in a world that is not neutral. It's wanting to toss you to and fro. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's doctrine. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, so in other words, believe the Bible, believe the teaching of the Bible through the people that God has given to the church to teach the Bible faithfully to you under the collective guidance and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Why? Or verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, meaning false doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's the battle of the Christian life. And that battle raged in Genesis 3, and it rages today. You must have a correct doctrine of Scripture. A couple historic examples. We see this really in the development of the church in the early centuries, eventually becoming the Catholic Church. And then we, the need for the Reformation. And one of the great problems in the church in the Middle Ages, which was the reason for the Protestant Reformation, is because the Catholic Church lost before they lost the doctrine of the gospel and the atoning work of Christ as the only means by which a person could be made right with God, they began to lose a good doctrine of Scripture. And they began to wrongly attribute the tradition of the church or the teaching of the Pope as having the same authority as the Bible. And slowly over time, it began to creep. And because the church, the Catholic church at that time, lost the doctrine and the authority of Scripture over and against the tradition of the church, they lost the gospel. We see it today. And I say this with lots of compassion and love in my heart because I believe many of these people are Christians. And this is the stream of the church that I grew up in and came to faith in. But the Pentecostal charismatic stream of the church is another example where the doctrine of Scripture is often threatened because there is a high premium in those streams of the church on experience and what you feel. And although they would confess the same things that, that we have talked about as far as that the Scripture is authoritative and Scripture is true, there is such a premium put on your experience that what happens functionally is experience slowly begins to share authority with the Word, and inevitably, in extreme cases, the experience of the preacher or the experience of the person who's calling himself a prophet starts to overtake, and they twist the Word to mean whatever they want to mean for their purposes. Friends, that is a problem. That's a problem. Now, just as much of a problem as people like us who just are satisfied with good doctrine and we don't ever let the word work in our hearts. That's a problem, but I bang on that all the time. I'm just wanting to illuminate you and guard you if you leave this church and go to some other one. Don't go to another one that puts so much emphasis on experience because eventually experience will trump good doctrine. Good doctrine should promote our worship of God and our experience, and it should guide it. It shouldn't be subordinate to it. I bring up these examples, friends, not to be unnecessarily combative or critical or quarrelsome. I really don't. But rather to help us be wise and discerning. Friends, this is the, this is the spiritual battle. This is the theological battle of our age. The authority of God's word. And the American church, listen to me, dear ones, Hear me, beloved, the American church, the greatest need in the American church theologically is discernment. And why are we so prone to these things? Because one of the things that has made Americans, the American culture great, the ingenuity and the creativity and the pragmatism to do whatever it takes to make things work, that same gift of God cannot be applied theologically to how we approach the Christian life. You can't be guided by a whatever works mentality when you come to an understanding of God's word. Because if you're guided by pragmatism and a whatever works to fill up the building or attract the crowd, what you will end up doing is not the Lord's work, but the devil's work, because you will attract a bunch of goats and make them think that they're sheep when they're not actually sheep, but they're goats. And so I say these things not to be, again, unnecessarily combative or critical or quarrelsome, but because I, along with the other elders, am responsible for you 
in a spiritual sense. And Hebrews 13, 17 says that I will stand before God one day and have to give an account of how I led you. And if I lead you based on my own desire to tickle your ears and fill this room with people that make me feel good about my ministry success, then that is spiritual malpractice. But if I stand before you and tell you that this is the word that we need discernment and we need to be aware of the unhealthy segments of the church and the wicked lies of our culture, even though it's not the most happy thing to talk about, if I don't do that when the word calls for it, I am an unfaithful shepherd and I don't want to stand before God being an unfaithful shepherd. Finally, why is the correct doctrine of Scripture so important? Because, because God works through his word. This is how God works. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. But God has bound himself. Of course he can do whatever he wants. But he primarily has bound himself to work through his word to save people and transform people. That's what God does. It's his primary means of grace. Do not, dear ones, do not pit the Spirit of God against the Word of God as if the two in a church culture are at odds with one another. Sometimes people have that faulty notion, well, that church is all about the Word of God, but the Spirit's not really moving. Well, if that church is like that, it's because they are dry. They're not letting the word that they're committed to warm their hearts and produce in them worship and affection for God. That's not a right understanding of the word of God. And don't pit the spirits moving against the word of God. You know what that's like? That's like, think about this. The, the, the hidden hand of God is riding through Paul and Peter. It's writing through these writers of the Bible and it's bringing about exactly what God intends, literally superintending the pen of the Bible writers. And when we pit the spirit against the word, essentially what we do is it's like we're wrestling the hand of God away from the pen of God and we're saying, no, you don't need that pen. Here's this magic wand. Wave it and make something miraculous happen for me. He has made something miraculous happen for you. He's made you go from spiritual death to life, and he has miraculously given you his word so that you might obey it and live and fight with other Christians to serve him. That's miraculous. Two final encouragements, not on the screen, just to land this plane. And this plane needs to land. <laughs> One... Friends, we don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. In our high view of Scripture, let's not strangely, wrongly, let it lead us away from God. Let, let it lead us to the Lord. We don't want to be like the religious leaders in John 5. In our pursuit of good doctrine, we dare not miss the one to whom the good doctrine points. And then secondly, a pastoral encouragement, and I'll pray after this. It's one thing to have a good doctrine of Scripture. It's another thing to have a good practice of taking Scripture in. And let's just admit, this is a fight. I exhort you, I exhort myself, let's fight to not just have a good theory of Scripture, but a good practice of Scripture intake. Fight, and it is a fight, to make Scripture intake, reading, listening, the great habit, discipline of your life. Why, why can we watch sporting events for three or four hours and not lose our focus. Some of us are about to leave this room and go do that and watch a football game. We can watch. This is, I was thinking about this the other day when I was thinking about how easily it is to get distracted or bored when you're reading the Bible. We can watch men with a stick hit a little white ball and then go chase it and hit it again and hit it again into a little cup 
And we can walk, I'd do it. I, I love doing it. I don't like to do it myself because I get mad and I sort of lose my witness when I'm doing it. I'm terrible at it. But we can do that for three or four hours straight and not be bored. But we read five verses in Colossians. Oh, man. What's going on there? It's spiritual warfare. There is an enemy that wants to destroy you. He wants to distract you. He wants to disciple you in a culture that makes you think that the Bible's irrelevant or it's antiquated or it's hard to understand. He's throwing a thousand things at you. And then there's the frailty of our flesh, which has fallen. So we have the world, the, our flesh, and the devil conspiring against us. Every time we pick up God's word, every time you pick up that word, you're going into battle. But here's what I want to tell you is that yes, it's a fight. So know that. Be encouraged when it's hard. Fights are hard. I've never been in a fight that was easy. Fights are hard. And know this, that he who began a good work in you has promised to complete it until the day that Jesus comes again. And part of that work, dear ones, part of that work, Christian, who feels convicted for not reading your Bible enough, part of that work is developing in you over time the grit, the discipline, the tenacity to come back again, again, and again. When you failed, when you've gone a week, when you've gone a month, when you've gone six months without picking up God's word, to come back again and say, Lord, help me understand, and to read it with other believers, and to be part of a church, and to open up your Bible on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, when you meet with some brothers and sisters to fight, to fight, to fight to take in God's word so that this word would point you to the word Christ himself and bring you all the way home. Martin Luther said in the middle of the Protestant Reformation, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Oh, that that would be true of me and you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, none of this means anything unless we see the Christ of scriptures. The Bible is about the fact that you are holy and eternal and immortal and altogether righteous and good. And for your glory, you created us. And we have all fallen and rebelled against you. And you did not leave us in our spiritual death and rebellion. But you came to us through your son, Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, fully man, fully God, who laid down his life, who died for the punishment that should have been ours and rose again in victory and now by his word calls all of us to turn from our sin and to put our hope in you, Lord. You have given us your word which points us to that great and glorious news. Lord, may we believe it afresh today. If there's anyone in this room who does not trust in the one message of the Bible, which is the crucified Son of God, risen in victory for all who will repent and believe, Lord, let them see that. May they turn from themselves and may they put their hope in Christ right now, Lord. And in order for that to happen, Lord, it's not going to be a function of their will. Their will is not free to do that. Their will is enslaved by sin. They need you to unshackle their will. They need you to bring their dead will back to life so that they can see the point of the Bible, which is Christ. And Lord, I plead with that you would do that for people in this room that came in not knowing Jesus. Lord, do that, I pray. And Lord, for the rest of us that already believe that good news of the Bible, Lord, rouse our sleepy, 
pathetic, tired, frail, wimpy hearts and put steel in our spine and focus in our minds and grit in our heart, Lord, so that we would commit ourselves to have more than just a theory or a doctrine, but a practice of feasting on the banquet of your word. Lord, I need this so much more in my life. I read junk all day long. I scroll through social media. I waste time. Lord, I repent of that. Help me know more of you through your word and help my friends do this as well. And Lord, with your word, wound us so that you might heal us. Contradict us so that you might care for us and make us more like Jesus until that day when this lamp, this torch in the dark cave, this written word will yield to the true word, Christ, and we shall see him face to face. Lord, do that, I pray for us. Make us more like Jesus. Use this Sunday, this text, to build this church for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.